0: When we come to the first chapter of Genesis, it's easy for us to get lost, lost in arguments about theories of origins, lost in discussions about why certain things were listed on the various days of creation, perhaps even lost in discussions about what the creation week means for us in our daily lives. But look at the first verse. The first verse says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this stands against those who would deny the existence of God. The Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God. The Bible just says God is and God made the world. And so we don't have to be apologetic for believing that because that's what the Bible says we don't have to start with the theories of men that come and go and try to make the Bible fit into those theories because it came long before those theories and it will stand long after those have been overturned and new theories have been put forth people will say well science answers questions uh, about the beginning of the universe, and so we know the Bible's wrong. Science can't answer questions about the beginnings of the universe because science is based on observation. None of us can be there and observe it. And what we think we know by looking at the things around us does not change what God has said. And so in this chapter... I think the main point that is made is that God made everything and God made it very good. Some would argue for a a break between verses 1 and 2. They would argue for death before the creation that God said was very good. They would argue for, perhaps connected with that sin before it. They would argue for long periods of time And in my mind, all of these things are an effort to concede to various theories that people have come up with who reject God. And we should not feel obligated to do that. It says, God made the heavens and the earth. That's a summary statement of all of God's work. In verse 2 it says, the earth was formless and void, darkness upon it, the Spirit of God moving over the surface of the waters. What precisely this means in terms of the order of what's laid out of the days and um, uh, what that should lead us to believe about all of the specific details of those first moments of creation, Genesis doesn't really seek to answer for us. It just describes what was and what God did. And so it is not wrong to think about those things, but it's not the main point of this passage. God was present. God was at work. Other passages remind us that it's not just God the Father and God the Spirit, but that according to John chapter 1, Christ was present in and involved with the fulfilling of the creation plan. The triune God made the heavens and the earth. How does this begin? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, and it exists. Think about that. You and I create things, but when we say that we create things, we mean, for example, we get a piece of paper out from a cabinet, we grab a pencil off the kitchen table, we draw something, we perhaps paint something, We sculpt something out of clay. We build something out of boards and screws. We need raw materials with which to work. God speaks, and His power brings things to be. Consider such power. We're made in God's image, and so we have some small ability to create, but our creation is never out of nothing. Out of formlessness and void and darkness, we have to start with something. God didn't have to start with anything. We create things because we like them or they fulfill some need for us. We need a table, so we make a table. We want to appreciate beauty, so we draw a picture. God had no such need. God created to bring Himself glory, but God was glorious if there was never a creature that existed to tell Him so. All these things help us to see these truths in their proper perspective. God speaks and it happens. God describes it not as, well, I'm glad that worked, He describes it as good. And God separated the light from the darkness, verse 4. The light was good. How do we know it was good? Because God said so. How do we know what is good? Because God tells us what is good. The reference point for what is good is God. Not us, not our assessment of the way that God works, but what God has said. God is the definition of good and the standard by which God Our actions and words and thoughts must be evaluated. Verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, one day. But it wasn't really a day, was it? It was a long period of time. It could have been thousands or millions of years. No, it says evening and morning, one day. Well, maybe it wasn't a normal day, but it describes it the way that we describe one day. There are very few occurrences in the Bible where a day is a period of time more than a single day. For example, the phrase, the day of the Lord. But it's not described as evening and morning one day, is it? Paul talks in the New Testament about in that day, the day in which Christ returns, and he's talking about all of those end times events. But again, he doesn't describe it with a phrase like evening and morning, one day. Exodus holds this interpretation as well. It says, God created in six days, rest on the seventh, set a pattern for man's week. That's not the primary point of this, but it does support this idea that when God says it was one day, that it was one day. And they were actual days. They were not... It's not a poetic framework in which God talks about creating things and then putting things in those things. It's a normal week. God didn't have to take a week, but He did. On the second day, God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated waters below from waters above, and it was so. He called the expanse heaven there was evening, there was morning, a second day. People also get into arguments about this verse. Is it a water vapor canopy around the earth? Is it? What does this mean when it says heaven? It's not heaven from the perspective of what we often think about heaven as like a destination for believers. It's heaven as in more like the idea of sky. God is creating the heavens around the earth. But that extends beyond just the oxygen that we breathe, the immediate atmosphere around the earth, that extends to the rest of the universe that God made, full of stars, full of potentially planets and other objects that we have never seen and may never see. God created all of those things. But in this context, it's primarily speaking about that which surrounds the earth. The third day, God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, the gatherings of the waters. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them, After their kind, and God saw that it was good, there was evening and there was morning, a third day. This poses a problem for people, because they say, well, um, how can there be trees when there's no sun? We're talking about a God who speaks everything into existence supernaturally in a period of time that he is set apart to do so. I think God can't make a plant grow for a day until the sun is created. What about the point where it says plants yielding seed and bearing fruit after their kind? Again, people talk about theories in which there is this progression from one species to another species and so on and so forth where these boundaries are transcended in a way that is not supported by any of the archaeological and fossil records that we have seen, which doesn't happen today and which contradicts the specific statement that we see in this passage it says after their kind there are broad families of plants and they are able to make more plants within those broad categories and they can't outside of them been reading some interesting things about genetics uh, connected with gardening in the last few weeks and it's fascinating to see how you take this thing and this thing maybe this one produces something that's pink and you cross it with something that's yellow and you end up with some unexpected color all tied to the genetics of how all that's put together But we're talking a rose bush crossed with a rose bush not a rose bush co- crossed with a cactus we're talking um, a tomato crossed with a tomato not a tomato crossed with something else. God said after their kind, and that's what the plants do. God will say the same thing with regard to animals and people, and that's what happens. And so a concept of the way that the universe works that says that it doesn't work that way is taking men's theories and putting them at a higher level than what God has specifically said. The fourth day, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night. Let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years, for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. He put them in the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Why did God create the sun and the moon and the stars? He created them to give light to the people that he was going to put on the earth. He created them to be a testimony and a witness to his power. That's what Psalms speaks of. That's what Romans 1 speaks of. The heavens declare the glory of God. He put them to give order to the universe that he had made. It was not a chaotic happenstance. Things just sort of fell into place on their own. It was specifically planned and purposed and carried out by God. Verse 20, God said, "...let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the expanse of the heavens." God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. This again argues against theories of evolution that say that life began in the seas and then moved on to the land, because we have things that live on the land and things that live in the seas at the same time. And the reason was that God made them that way, and that's what he purposed for them to do. And they, in turn, produced more fish and more birds after their kind. There's dispute about what the word kind means. It's probably not as narrow as what we, uh, our uh, classification of a species, and it's, prob- it's not as broad as some of the higher um, classifications in that system. But the bottom line is there are different kinds of fish and different kinds of bird, birds. And those different kinds of fish and different kinds of birds produce more fish and more birds after their kind. And then verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of their earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind. And everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not God made zebras and elephants and giraffes and everything else. It's God is describing general categories that the people in Israel would have been familiar with. So broadly speaking, living creatures, that's the broad category. And then here's a few specific examples. Things like cattle and things like the snakes that crawl along the ground. God made all of those things. God described it as good. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, And rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. There are a number of points that we see from these verses that i just like to highlight for you briefly. God made people in his image. Why do people have value? Why Why do they have worth? Why is life important to be valued, to be preserved, to be defended? Because it comes from God. It reflects God, and it is for God, and we ought to value it as a result. Why do people keep dogs as pets and dogs don't keep people as pets? Certain kids' movies notwithstanding. Because that is the order that God established. God created all of these things and put human beings at the top of it, in His image, as it says in the Psalms, created a little lower than the angels to rule with dignity and honor. That is not the result of a long process of evolution in which we won out. That is because God said it was that way. We have a responsibility in connection with these verses to be wise stewards of the creation that God has put under our control, but it never should take priority over human life. Because people and animals are in different categories. Ironically, we live in a world today where there is sometimes more enthusiasm and effort and fundraising that goes into the preservation of a stray cat or dog or bird than in preserving the life of a human child because the parent didn't want it. If we understand what this chapter is saying, that God made all things, that they're very good, that life has value, we will not let ourselves fall into that Way of thinking. I'm not saying it's wrong to rescue a cat or dog from a shelter, but if you don't value human life more, something's wrong with your perspective on the way God has established his world. There's dispute over whether this command continues today. Do we still have authority over the earth today? Uh, Is there still this command, verse uh, 28, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it? Um, I think that the urgency of the command is different for Adam and Eve when there were two people, for Noah and his family when there were eight people, than in our present world today. but we also live in a world where sometimes we don't value children and see them as blessings and gifts from God. So this is something that is broadly given to humanity as a whole through Adam and Eve. So it's not a specific command to a specific family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in looking at a passage like this, we should not... Arrive at a point that says large families are wrong, or another extreme that says um, uh, small families are wrong because we live in a different time than when God gave this command. Man still rules over the earth. But not just Adam and Eve and their descendants in one place. We were spread across the face of the earth. There are uh, government structures in place that affect our specific carrying out of some of these things, and so we have to recognize some of those things. But the structure, the order, the way that God describes all these things still holds true today. The order is God, man, the rest of creation. What about the thing where God gave them food? We see God providing for his people even in the very beginning. Just like God gave the people in the wilderness manna, God gave the people in the garden food to eat. It's interesting to note that it was plant food, not meat. And uh, again, that is not an argument for today, that it is sinful to eat chicken and hamburgers and those sorts of things. Why? Because ironically what's gonna happen in the next chapter, sin enters into the world and death through sin and just as there is a difference between human life and animal life, there's a difference between animal life and vegetable life. As much as some people would have you to believe differently, a squash does not scream when you cut it off the vine. Can it have responses to light and various other stimuli? Yes. But it doesn't have life in the same way that a cat or a dog or a sheep or a a cow have life. And none of those things have life in the same way that people have life. And it's important for us to remember the differences in all these things. But in the beginning, God gives people food, and that food was the plants that were producing after their kind and perpetuating themselves. And God says, I have provided for you. It is for you to eat. And I skipped over verse 27, but this is an important verse as well. Why are we the way that we are? Because God created men and women. Why is there, as we'll see in the next chapter, marriage? Why are there families? It's not because it's a convenient societal arrangement that people have arrived at over thousands of years. It's because that's the way that God set it up. Just as God created structure and order in the arrangement of his creation, God created structure and order in the way that human beings relate to one another in marriage, in families, in nations, and so forth. These things are derived from God's plan and God's purpose and God's watching over all of them. And God describes this all as very good. And we'll see in the next chapters why it is not very good today if it began as very good. But God said this was all very good. And so going back to the beginning, was God using the processes of evolution, of chaos and destruction to produce something that was very good? I don't think that fits with the tone of the passage. There was nothing. God creates a substance. God shapes that substance and fills it with life and describes it as very good. How then should we see God's work? We should see it as very good. That comes down to where God has placed us. The book of Acts, Paul said in his sermon, God put the nations of the world in the place where they are and all of those different things. We should see God's hand in the fact that you are sitting here this morning, that your hair is the color that it is, that you're in the family that you're a part of. Many other things we should see as God's plan and God's purpose and God's design, just like it was God's purpose and God's plan and God's design in establishing Creation in the beginning. If God made all things, what does that mean for us? It means we have a responsibility to the God who made us. Why do people try so hard to explain away the truths of this passage? Because we want to be our own God. If God made me, I owe him something. If I'm just a product of random chance, I don't owe anybody anything. But that's not what we see in Genesis 1. So if God made you, God can tell you what is best for your life and what pleases Him and what His plan is for the world. What is best for your life is to worship the God who made you. What pleases Him is for you, for you to live in obedience to Him, having trusted in Him, as we know as Scripture develops, through His Son. And what is His plan? It's what we sing about in that song, Creation Sings. God made the world. The second Adam walked the earth. He's coming to rule and reign as king. That's the span of human history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it was very good. In the end of the recorded history, at the end of the book of Revelation, God's people are in God's presence. He wipes away every tear from before their eyes. There is a brightness that outshines the sun and makes it completely unnecessary because God's glory is revealed to His people, and they will be in His presence forever. If we properly understand the scope of the Bible from that perspective it changes the way that we look at so many different things. Why am I here? Because God created. What do I need to do? Worship that God. Live for Him. What is the ultimate end of all things? God is going to reign. Those who oppose Him will be defeated and punished. Those who are on His side will share in His victory. And so we look at the story of the Bible and people say, well, what's the point of the Bible? What's the message of the Bible? What's it all about? Briefly speaking, that's what it's about. God made us. God expects certain things from us. If we believe in God and follow after Him, This is where we'll end up. But understanding that, and understanding Christ, and understanding the history of Israel, and the history of the church, all of those different things, and understanding where we are today, doesn't make sense apart from what we see right here. And so if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. God made everything, and he made it very good. But he finished his work, chapter 2 and verse 1. The heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, set it apart, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so there is a sense in which... God is setting a pattern for the week that He would have His people Israel to follow. And even though we gather on the first day of the week to honor Christ and His resurrection, not the last day of the week, there is still a continuity or a connection between what we see here and what we see at the end of all things because it says in the book of Hebrews, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God creates, God works, and then He rests. And then there's all of this activity in the span of human history. And then when we are in God's presence, there is a rest that is promised for God's people. And so we see these connections again over and over between the beginning and the end, between the the start of God's plan and the completion of God's plan. And we see in this and in many other ways that what God has revealed is a unified truth. It's not this guy wrote down this idea and that guy wrote down that idea and they sort of all mashed it together and kind of made it fit, but there's some places where it doesn't really fit. It is God's revelation of himself from beginning to end. And so God has spoken. God has revealed himself. God has made the world. What are you and I going to do about that fact? We really only have two choices. We will believe what Genesis 1 says. And if God made the world, and he made me, then I owe him my worship, my obedience, my life, because it's his anyway. And as we see from the rest of scripture, I will share in the joy of his presence forever. And the other option is to say, this is all made up, it's not true, it's a bunch of nonsense, it's human words, I can do whatever I want, there is no God that rules over my life. Where does that end? God judges. Those who do not obey the gospel, those who deny the presence of God, those who say, I will not follow the God that creation clearly speaks of and that the Bible specifically tells of. And that is a fearful place to be. Because, like the people in Second Thessalonians 2, we say to God enough, I love a lie and I want only the lie if God answers yes what hope is there? Don't reject the truth of what God says here in his word. Don't think that you know better from God. Don't say I'd rather believe this thing over here because it is both God's judgment if you persist in that, and it will finish in God's judgment if you do not turn from that. God made it all. And it was very good. And next week we'll look at why the world around us doesn't always live up to that praise. Very good. In fact, many times it does not. In fact, creation groans and is full of pain and suffering and difficulty, why? We'll look next week and answer that question. But for this week, God made everything, and it was very good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe your word over the... Ideas that well-learned people put forth as being a better explanation of things. Lord, help us to be willing to not say more than your word says, but also not to say less than it does. Because both are errors that do not do honor to your word. We don't have all the answers for all the questions that a chapter like this raises. And a big part of that is the fact that we're not God and we do not fully understand how everything fits together. But that in and of itself is an opportunity for us to trust you and rest in the fact that you are God rather than arrogantly trying to be you. If we walk away from a chapter like this and and we can explain all the theories that are out there and and our reasons for them and all of those sorts of things, and we miss the point that you made the world and it is your world and we must live in it for you, then we've missed the point of this truth. Lord, help us not to miss the main point because we want to figure out all of the little points connected with it. Help us not to forget that you made a world that was good, which raises the question of why is it not good now, which drives us to Christ. I pray that all of us are trusting in him today. I pray that even if there are still questions in our mind after reading a passage like this about all the specific details, that we are firmly assured that you made the world, that it is your world, that it was very good when you created it, and it will be very good again when you restore it. Help us to have that hope and to live in that hope and to share that hope with other people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.